Hello and welcome back to the Math and Physics podcast. This is episode 9 and I am your host Parker. And I am Ray and today we're going to be talking about a very interesting topic that I think both Parker and I are very interested to talk about, quantum mechanics. That's right. This is going to be the first episode in, I guess, a series we're going to do which we yeah. cover or I guess it's the second episode. The first episode was the special relativity one. We're we're, we're going to cover topics that we um, learned about in class. Mm-hmm. But obviously, um, should be noted that a lot of these topics that we're going to be talking about today were not necessarily discussed in our class. There are like a lot of them are just research findings and stuff like that that we're going to be talking about. So it's not only like from our class, but a lot of it has been originated from there. So yeah. So I think we can just start up. All right. So the first thing we looked at in class um, when we started the quantum mechanics unit was uh, a couple experiments to show why quantum mechanics is a little bit weird. So Mm -hmm. the first one, obviously, we've seen this before in high school, but the double slit experiment, very famous experiment where you see light diffract and interact with itself and uh, creates like this wave pattern on the on the board where you where you project it on yep so the double slit experiment is actually a very key experiment into really diving into what the difference is between classical and quantum physics so um i i know parker kind of just gave an introduction to it but first i just want to talk a little bit about the fact that classical physics is a lot more logical and intuitive than quantum physics. So there are a lot of things that we're going to be talking about today that probably make zero sense because they can't really be logically thought of. But that's why quantum physics is so cool, right? Because you can't have a logical explanation for it, but it's still something that happens. And that's just what we're talking about. So in the double slit experiment, um, there are, as the experiment says, there are two slits. And there is a beam of light that is cast through those two slits. Now, the logical answer will tell us that light, being a particle, will simply show two straight lines, right? Because there are two slits and therefore the particles will pass through each slit and create lines. However, the reality of the situation is something known as wave-particle duality, which is where a particle can act or behave as a mathematical wave. Now this right here is what causes an interference pattern. And if anyone were to search up double slit experiment, you would see a very interesting pattern where the intensity is the most in the middle and the least on the sides. And what this tells us is that light being a particle can also act as a wave. And this is kind of the introduction into what quantum mechanics is and the fact that, as I said, particles behave as waves. If, if you want to kind of imagine what the interference pattern looks like, um, Veritasium has a really good video on um, like uh, the double slit experiment. And so mm-hmm. the, he, does it, he does it in like water and you can see the rings that he creates right from two sources. Yeah. Um, but in this situation, the interference pattern is actually purely mathematical. And then all we see is the result portrayed onto the onto the background, 
right? We just see the result of the of the interference that happens in theory, and then we get these spikes in brightness that mm-hmm. pop up on on the background. And and what you said right there is actually once again really important to know that these particles are not actually waves; they just behave as waves, and that that important distinction is incredibly important to dive into really what quantum mechanics really is. Yeah, and the the first thing that I kind of clued in when we were doing this in class, right, I kind of got my first um, taste of the wave function and probability density is when he used that experiment to explain to us probability density. Mm -hmm. So he drew the graph, basically, he, he drew the... Um, double slit experiment and then he drew the peaks of each um like the peaks of brightness i guess on on the board it kind of looks like a hill like uh yeah 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 and so the obviously the highest one was in the middle and then they kind of get lower and lower and then he said okay don't imagine this as the brightness of the light but imagine it as how probable it is for a photon to land there, right? Mm-hmm. So obviously the places where the probably probability density is higher, then you're going to be getting more photons. And then where the interference pattern creates a zero, there's just a zero probability for photons to pop up there. Mm-hmm. So that's pretty much the double slit experiment and why it's so important. Again, because it just gives us a mathematical understanding of what's happening between these atoms and, or sorry, between these photons. However, a really important thing that I really wanted to discuss before we move further is, so I've already spoken about the fact that quantum physics is very different from classical physics, right? But I want to talk about how. The big difference is the quantum model of the atom. So I think in high school chemistry, everyone should pretty much know the Bohr-Rutherford diagram. So the Bohr-Rutherford model of the atom is interesting because we talk about the nucleus in the middle and we have concentric circles around it that's how we draw it with electrons we have two electrons in the first shell eight in the second shell and we just keep going with eight because that's kind of the safe limit and that's what we've been taught in high school and that's what pretty much everyone believes until they come to university quantum mechanics if they do because in that class is where they will be taught that everything we learned about the Bohr-Rutherford diagram is just wrong. We just learn it because it's easy, right? And <laughs> exactly. it makes a little bit of sense. It, it, makes, it, it makes sense, but it's not exactly the correct model. And that's where we get into the quantum model of the atom. Now, the quantum model of the atom is very, very interesting because instead of concentric circles with electrons in them, we have electron clouds. Because remember when we were talking about the double slit experiment, we were discussing the idea of a probability and the fact that in the middle, the photons are more probable to be there than on the sides. With the electron, it's the exact same thing. With the quantum model, I mean, sorry. So there are electron clouds, which state the most probabilistic location of the electron near the atom. And when we draw multiple of these clouds, that is what makes an actual atom. So the difference, the key difference between the quantum model and the Bohr-Rutherford model is that the Bohr model talks about electrons as a certainty. That means an electron is exactly here. 
But in the quantum model or the more realistic model, it talks about electrons as a probability. And the electron is most probably here, but we cannot be for sure. And that's why it's so different to know the fact that the quantum model is the realistic version and the Bohr-Rutherford is simply to help kids understand how atoms really work. Oh, here's something interesting. You said um, in the quantum model, we just know that the electron is most probably here, right? Uh But something that we didn't think about um, talking about is why is it most probable right like like why can't we just know exactly where it is mm-hmm. right and that's because of the heisenberg uncertainty mm-hmm. principle which i i don't know if we talked about before right i do not believe we did i think we can talk about it now all right so the heisenberg uncertainty it's it's actually called the the heisenberg uh position momentum uncertainty <laughs> principle well, i think that's one of the because there are actually technically two heisenberg uncertainty principles the other one is with energy and time, but we never do that. So that's why this is called the momentum position or the position momentum uncertainty. Yeah, and so basically there's a limit. To, to put it simple, there's a limit to how much you can know about a particle, right? You can either know more about its position and less about its momentum or know more about its momentum and less about its position. Um, yeah, so when we're talking about electron clouds, it's basically because we can never really know exactly where um, the electron is going to be. Because in that case, if we know exactly where the electron is, then we have no idea where it is. And so we can't say that, okay, or sorry. Yeah, I think you just uh, <laughs> I you kind of, yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I meant to say we have no idea um, what its how momentum fast it's is. Moving. Yeah. Right, how fast it's moving, which in in that case would make absolutely no sense because then it wouldn't be able to remain in the Uh orbit of uh, the nucleus. Yeah. So, and the reason it won't is because, so pretty much what this is saying is as the uncertainty in the position or the uncertainty in the position is inversely proportional to the uncertainty in the momentum. That's pretty much what the uncertainty principle says, which means the more certain we are about a particle's position, the less certain we are about its momentum and the other way around as well. The more certain we are about its momentum, the less certain we are about its position. Now, an electron and an atom must have a certain velocity or a certain speed to be kept within the atom. Because if this electron is given too much energy and moves way too fast, then it'll just escape the atom, right? And therefore, there is a limit to how much speed this electron can have. Now, because we are aware of this limit, that makes us unaware of where the electron actually is. And that's exactly why we are never 100% certain about where an electron is in an atom. However, the more electrons we keep dumping on an atom, for example, if we talk about, you know, an atom with a lot of electrons like uh, uranium, uranium 238, for example, right? If it has so many electrons, we will be a lot more certain about where the bulk of the electrons are, because the more the electrons are put in, the higher the probability. And therefore, we can see, physically see or observe where these electrons will be. So it's mainly just like a combination of the law of large numbers and quantum mechanics, which kind of what makes these atoms so different from what we're used to in classical physics.
You know, it's a really interesting fact that I heard. Um, if you have an atom, okay, and the nucleus is the size of like a marble, I'm pretty sure um, this is how it goes. So if, if you have the nucleus the size of an atom, the nearest electron is going to be in the st- in like the stands of a football field. Yeah, it's it, it's something crazy like that. I don't exactly know this exact analogy, but yeah, something like that. Which is absolutely crazy. Because also an interesting fact in real life, atoms are 95%, 90 or 95% just No, nothing. way more than that. Way more mean? than that. It's like 99.99. No, no, absolutely yes. not. It's like 95. Yes. Listen, okay. It's not I, 95, bro. Wait, 95% empty space. That's what I'm saying. No, it's it's like 99.9, I promise. Okay, um, we're going to take a quick technical break. So, unfortunately, I have just found out that I was incorrect <laughs> and Parker was correct. And atoms are indeed approximately like 99.99999% empty space, which once again is a very interesting fact and therefore kind of also gives us a logical understanding for why electrons are so far away from the nucleus. Also, an interesting thing about these atoms is that the reason they're so pretty much empty is because these electrons in these shells are moving so fast, right? And because they're moving so fast, just like an orbit around the Earth, the faster they move, the farther they are away from the nucleus. And therefore, a majority of these electrons, the bulk of them, are extremely far away from the nucleus for the main reason that they're moving so ridiculously fast. Right, and something that um, everyone has to understand is that the faster you move, the more energy you have, mm-hmm. right? And that's yeah. why, um, that's why, like when we talk about angular momentum within the atom, um, the faster you're going, the farther away you have to be from the nucleus. <laughs> yeah, and that's actually also how the photoelectric effect works, right? So when a photon, or I'm, I'm just going to give a quick introduction photoelectric effect is a photon hitting a metal with a certain uh energy level you i guess you can say it hits a metal and what happens when it hits an atom is an electron is given off so how does that work well that works in the exact same way that we were just telling you how speed relates to energy so when a photon hits an atom it is hitting it with a lot of energy so what it does is when it interacts with an electron in this atom it gives the atom additional energy, which therefore allows this electron to speed up even more and therefore escape the pull of the atom. And that is how an electron is released. And that's also how the photoelectric effect can be tied into quantum mechanics. Right. And um, there's also, like, it it depends on what the difference in electric potential energy Mm -hmm. is between the two nodes. Like, sometimes... um, if the difference in potential is not great enough, then the electron will eject itself from the metal, but it'll just turn around and come back Mm -hmm. because the difference in potential is not great enough. And it's just being attracted back by the, um, the electric force of the plate. It just left and then right enters back into Mm -hmm. the uh, conductor. And also, this is how solar panels and solar cells work using the photoelectric effect. Interesting fact as well, 
Einstein got the Nobel Prize for the photoelectric effect, I believe, in 1930. And another interesting fact, he did not believe in quantum mechanics whatsoever. He was actually an advocate against quantum mechanics because he did not believe any of the crazy theories about quantum mechanics that we're going to be talking about in this podcast. And some of them are extremely extreme and defy some of the laws that he actually made up. And that's what extremely extreme. It's it's that extreme. That's what I'm trying to say. It's so extreme that it's extremely extreme. And we're going to be talking about some of that. So let's talk about the first one, right? Quantum tunneling. Mm, Let's talk about What, what is quantum tunneling. Okay, so basically, we talked about briefly earlier how particles have a probability density that can Uh be written as a wave equation. Okay, and it just tells you how probable it is for a particle to appear in a certain location, right? So if you have, let's say, um, a potential barrier, okay? So a potential barrier is when um, your, your wave function encounters a change in potential energy where it, um, usually we talk about the barrier is mm-hmm. upwards. Well, right? actually, actually, um... To be honest, we don't really have to get into potential barriers because tunneling can even be explained with just think about like an electron on one side of a wall kind of explanation. You know, we don't really have to go with the potential barriers because that's kind of getting into another topic, which we have a lot more episodes to talk about. But right now, I think I think we can just think of instead of a potential barrier, we can just I think this is the perfect example. I saw it on a YouTube video. Think of an electron like a person inside a jail cell. Now, the interesting thing about quantum tunneling or the fact that electrons have a probability instead of a certainty is that there is a very small chance, a small probability that the electron can be present outside of the jail cell. So one minute, one moment, it's inside the jail cell. It can be very much possible that the next second it appears right outside. And that's quantum tunneling. When and once again, we the potential barrier explanation is a much better explanation, but it requires a lot more details to really go forward. And I think the jail cell is like perfect because there, we can also give this analogy. If let's say we are locked up and locked up in a cell, there is, even though almost impossible, a very very microscopic chance that we tunnel through the cell obviously (laughs) pretty much impossible because if every single particle in our body decides to tunnel through exactly that has to happen every single particle out of the trillions and trillions and of of particles inside our body all of them have to tunnel at the same time which is obviously not true which will never be really possible but there is still a very small chance of that happening and that's pretty much quantum tunneling and why it's so cool Also, a really interesting thing that I do want to add is quantum tunneling when we talk about technology, right? So recently, um, the way transistors are made in our phones and laptops are that they're made very, very, very closely together. That means recently we have discovered a five nanometer process. That means these transistors will only be five nanometers apart. The problem with getting it closer, like three nanometers or two nanometers, is tunneling. Because the entire point of a transistor is to stop 
or allow the flow of electrons. The problem is, if we make this gap way too tiny, there is a small chance that the electron simply tunnels through the gate and it destroys the entire purpose of the transistor in the first place. And I know this is not really what we talk about in this podcast, but I thought it's a pretty cool thing to talk about how quantum mechanics also changes our day-to-day lives when it talks about electricity and how we work with our phones and stuff like that. Because with our brand new phones, we have seven and five nanometer processes, which will now soon be coming to even less, which will be a problem with quantum mechanics. And also our friend uh, Matt, who is a biochemist, um, (laughs) told us briefly how quantum mechanics is right. Like they discovered something in, um, in your nose, basically, that allows you to smell that has something to do with quantum tunneling. It's kind of like the the particles like enter your system somehow. They don't know how. <laughs> and they, they think they just tunnel through a, a part of your nose. And that allows wow. like your receptors to be able to smell things. So, I'm not going to yeah. lie. I have never heard of this theory before, but it sounds really cool. Yeah, it I mean does, that's what that's what Matt told me. I I don't know. I believe him. He's <laughs> going into third year, so I don't know. He seems pretty wise, I guess. <laughs> okay, so now I think uh, we can talk about one of my favorite quantum mechanical processes ever, known as quantum entanglement, or as Einstein or Al- Albert Einstein called it, spooky action at a distance. So quantum entanglement was actually one of the biggest debates or part of one of the biggest debates in the science community because, and this was pretty much the debate where they were talking about is quantum mechanics and all of these probabilities, like, is that even real or is that just our brain trying to make sense of all these weird things? Mm -hmm. And the fact is it is real. And quantum entanglement is one of the weirdest, absolutely weirdest processes or phenomenon in uh, quantum mechanics yeah one of the reasons why it's so weird and i found this oh shit my computer did it die i can still hear you though it just went to sleep okay it's good okay and so one of the reasons why uh quantum entanglement is so weird is because it can actually break the speed of light it can break the the universal um Speed Speed limit, limit. right? Quantum entanglement is a very specific phenomenon because even though it seems as if it breaks the speed of light, it doesn't actually break any laws because in Albert Einstein's postulates, one of the laws wasn't that nothing can travel faster than the speed of light. That is not what he said. He said no information can travel faster than the speed of light. Now, quantum entanglement, which I will explain in just a few seconds, doesn't actually transfer information. So what does it transfer or how does it work? So quantum entanglement is actually a very easy process where you simply collide two particles, which makes them entangled or entangled with each other. Obviously, they have to have specific properties that I'm not going to dive into. But if any, for example, two protons are sent together, you can entangle them. Now, what's so important or what's so interesting about this entanglement? Oh, before you, you go ahead, I think we should explain that um, when two particles are entangled, basically it doesn't matter where they are in the universe. Mm-hmm. If you know information about one of them, you automatically know information about the second one. And so that's why it can break 
the speed of light, right? Because the speed of light is 300,000 meters or 300 million meters per second. And so if we have, let's say, um, two particles 300 million meters away and you want to know something about the particle that is very far away, if you look at the first particle, you know exactly what you want to know about the second particle, and it was instant. It took less than a second, and therefore the mm-hmm. information traveled faster than the speed of light. No, no, so but, that's but no. Kind of... Okay, again, again, again. No, 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 no. Because the entire point of this is that it doesn't break Einstein's special relativity laws. It's I know. So inter- I, I was just explaining like like what it kind of is. Yeah, yeah, but but I'm just trying to correct you in the part where you said information travels faster because it doesn't. Because what they do and how the entanglement works, because see, scientists are smart. They still manage to transfer information without actually transferring information. And I'm going to tell you what that means in a second. So what? why is quantum entanglement really cool? So this is why it's really cool. Let's say, okay, maybe we have to explain the spin of particles first. I believe in a previous episode, we've already talked about spins of particles and how this universal spin has to be equal. That means if two particles are entangled with each other and one particle is spin up, it must be that the other particle is spin down. That is the only way to conserve angular momentum in the universe because spin is a part of angular momentum. So if one is spin up, the other must be spin down. And this is exactly how they transfer information. I'm going to tell you right now. What they do is very, very interesting. So let's say I have particle A and particle B. Particle A is spin up. Particle B is spin down. And they are entangled with each other. I take particle A and I throw it to the other side of the universe. Now it's all the way on the other side of the universe, right? I have particle B right with me. Remember, particle B is spin down. What I do in a lab is I change the spin of particle B from spin down to spin up. Oh, whoa, what just happened? (laughs) Does that mean there's an imbalance of spin? No, because the universe laws, the laws of the universe must be conserved. So particle A, that is billions and billions of light years away, automatically at that exact same instant will switch to spin down, just as particle B switches to spin up. So technically, as I said, No information was transmitted at all. So that change in spin will make sense to another person. But once again, no information has traveled. And realistically, this has already been taking place. So China, actually, I think it was one or two, maybe three years ago, they did an experiment where they entangled photons. They entangled these photons, sent them up to a space station, and shot them back down. So what the, what, what the experiment was is they were trying to transfer information from two different places in China by sending a pair of entangled photons. Now, realistically, one would never be able to tra- uh, one, one will never be able to send information faster than the speed of light. Now obviously, it is quite obvious that once again, as I said, information doesn't travel faster than the speed of light, and therefore China would have in no way been able to transfer information from these two places faster than the speed of light. However, because they entangled these photons and sent them up and then shot them back down to another place in China, 
they successfully completed one of the world's or hopefully universe's first real life experiments of quantum entanglement. And it was proven that the information or the information deciphered from the change in spin was received faster than the speed of light. And this is why quantum entanglement is so weird because it doesn't really have a logical explanation whatsoever, but it's just a fact about the universe that we simply have to accept. Oh, yeah. Super, super interesting stuff right there. I'm sure we're going to be doing another episode on quantum mechanics very soon because there's a lot to cover. So much. Yeah. Until then, this has been episode nine of the Math and Physics podcast. I'm your host, Parker. And I am Ray, and we will see you soon. See ya.